Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 4th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It was a dramatic day yesterday at Westminster as Prime Minister Boris Johnson failed to prevent a vote, taking over the order of business with a view towards passing legislation which will prevent the UK from leaving the European Union without a deal at the end of October. Following that defeat, the Conservative Party whip was removed from a large number of MPs, including former Chancellors Philip Hammond and Ken Clark. And there's a lot to take in in all this. And this story will unfold further today with debate on the No Deal legislation itself and on a motion from the government calling for a general election. I am joined by our political editor Pat Leahy and London editor Dennis Staunton to assess the state of play. And a little later on, we will be joined by the Spectator magazine's deputy political editor Katie Balls. Dennis Stunton, before you got into your current line of business, you were a man of the theatre. And I, I, observing events in Westminster yesterday, I thought I'd ask you for that uh, area of your expertise, if you could apply it to, to what we saw, because there was a lot to digest in the performances in the House of Commons yesterday. There was. It was a it was a play in two acts with an intermission. And the first act, the leading player was Boris Johnson. He was making a statement ostensibly about the G7 summit in uh, Biarritz uh, and took uh, took questions for an hour and a half or thereabouts. And uh, and he, this was only his second time appearing at the dispatch box as prime minister. And the first time he had done this uh, six weeks ago, uh, it was just an incredibly robustious performance. Uh, his own people behind him were roaring approval. He was funny. He was aggressive. He was uh, teasing Jeremy Corbyn. And if you looked at the opposition benches, and particularly the Labour benches. They were sh- shrinking back into their seats and they're just watching the spectacle of, uh, of power and energy. And this time it was exactly the opposite. His own benches behind him were silent. The Labour benches were full of energy and they were shouting at him. And like uh, an old performer, uh, who's uh, you know who finds himself in a bit of a spot? He turned to some of his old routines. They'd always worked before, and so he started to make jokes. He started to have digs about uh, Corbyn being a Benite, and it all fell flat. Nobody was amused. He was misjudging the audience. And then what happened was that Jeremy Corbyn got up, and here was somebody who can seldom command the uh, uh, the attention of the House for more than a few seconds because he's not only got the Conservatives opposite shouting at him, but he's got the other opposition parties, the SNP, the Liberals, all of them shouting, and his own people, half of them don't especially think he's very good, and he's not a great performer at the dispatch box. But he got up, and instead of having to talk about say, Brexit and, uh, you know, Labour's rather muddled policy on Brexit, he found because uh, Boris Johnson had decided to prorogue or suspend Parliament, he was talking uh, as a champion of parliamentary democracy against this tyrannical executive. And the uh, entire House listened to him in silence, and it wasn't a bored silence. It was, He had the attention of the House. And uh, so this was the first act where uh, suddenly this, uh, you know, the roles were reversed, and the great player Boris Johnson fell flat. 
Then you had an intermission, and the second act of the play, uh, the leading player was Jacob Rees-Mogg, leader of the house. And he, once again, gave this rather languid performance, uh, light-hearted and quite flippant. And at certain stages, he uh, lay on the front bench when he wasn't speaking, as if it was a chaise longue, and he was reclining on that. And, uh, and once again, the mood was, he completely misjudged the mood. And uh, it just went down very flat. Uh, and it went down very badly also with those conservative MPs who were considering rebelling. And they, some of them made the best speeches uh, of, the, of the second part. Corbyn also spoke, but Ken Clark uh, stood up and spoke about just the absurdity of somebody like uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and indeed Boris Johnson, who had been serial rebels, uh, who had made Theresa May's life a misery throughout her premier that these people should be demanding loyalty from uh, from their fellows. So it was uh, you know it was a two act play in which the leading players on the conservative side both misjudged the audience and misjudged the tenor of the evening and they and they gave very poor performances. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I was very conscious. I was trying to kind of get my own prejudices out of the way in as much as I could. But it certainly did seem to me that there was a glaring contrast between Johnson and Rees-Mogg on the, on the one hand. And as you say, this kind of, you know, not not taking things seriously approach being shown up for what it was. And on the other hand, really some very impressive, uh, impressive speeches from the Tory rebels, which were fact-based, um, which were well thought out, which were very calm and moderate and all the things that we that, that we were not getting now from Boris Johnson. There was also a very dramatic moment, actually, at the very beginning of that uh, debate, where there was a procedural thing where they, uh, you know, the speaker asks if this uh, motion from Oliver Letwin should be heard, and those who supported it stood up. And you saw in this corner of the back benches, just near the speaker's chair, the conservative rebels stood up. And when you saw them standing there, and they were applauded by the opposition, and it was these people, you know, Winston Churchill's grandson, Nicholas Soames, you had former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, Chancellor until a few weeks ago, uh, Oliver Letwin, Dominic Grieve, these uh, people who would, uh, you know, who were the backbone in, uh, in a way of mainstream conservatism. conservatism. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the very embodiment of Tory grandees in a way. And these were, uh, were the people, and they appeared, at least at that moment, to have a kind of a dignity about them as they knew that uh, what they were going to do uh, a few hours later was going to end their political careers, uh, they would be expelled from the Conservative Party and would not be able to stand for election for the party again. Pat? Well, first of all, of course, like everybody else, I'm completely jealous that Dennis gets to watch all this at first hand uh, in, in the House of Commons. But I watched a lot of it um, last night and, uh, and, and thereafter the fallout uh, from the votes in Parliament. And the, fir- the first thing I'll say that I think we need to be cautious about, and Dennis has you know, brilliantly there and in, in today's paper giving us a picture of, of, of what it looked like and how it felt and what it meant uh, in there. But we need to be careful about over-interpreting things like body language, facial expressions. They do tell you something. And in the House of Commons, you know, it has, the, there is the ebb and flow of power and influence. And that is often visible uh, uh, through such media. But, you know, personalities and, and, and personal magnetism and momentum that those things generate do matter in politics. They do matter in politics, but other things can be decisive. Big facts, big forces. And I think, you know, that those are the things that will decide, 
you know, the fate of Brexit and the fate of uh, of this government. As you know, I, I've thought for some time that it was Boris Johnson's plan that he would get an election because the big fact that he faces is the fact that he doesn't have a majority in Parliament and he needs to change that. Whether he wishes to do a deal or whether he wishes to do a no deal, he must change the numbers in Parliament. So all of this, I think, is a prelude to him getting the election. And I think in that election, if he gets it, I wonder what will Labour say? And we can come on to talk about that a little bit, I suppose. But I know that Boris Johnson will run on the same simple slogan that he has been running on since he became Prime Minister, which is that we will get out, deal or no deal, on October the 31st. And I wonder what will Labour say in that uh, election campaign. So I think that the... I think that the, the, the parliamentary shenanigans, while enormously entertaining and not insignificant, uh, of course, are the prelude to the big battle. And I think that will take place in an election. Dennis, what Pat says there, I find very interesting because Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, it seems to me, have been driving that momentum as hard as they can over the last few weeks. You know, it would have been eminently possible for them to sort of dribble their way through September. Then there would have been the, the, the recesses for the party conferences. And all of a sudden you would have been in the, in, in the middle of October. So they deliberately chose to provoke the Tory rebels to ensure that the defeat was going to happen earlier rather than later. And as Pat says, probably precipitate a general election, didn't they? Yeah, and so, and in a way, uh, you know, if they're confident of victory in that general election, purging the uh, parliamentary party of these people who don't share their approach to Brexit, uh, you know, could prove to be an act of internal political hygiene. The problem is, of course, twofold. One is he has to get the election. And secondly, he has to win it. And uh, to get the election, you know, uh, this evening, he, uh, you know, after the uh, likely defeat, uh, the second defeat on this bill uh, uh, to block Brexit, uh, he, uh, he has tabled a motion for looking for a, a general election in the middle of uh, October under the Fixed Term Parliament Act. He needs a two thirds majority. Uh, that is, according to my calculations, about 433 votes. Uh, 301 people, MPs, voted with the government last night. So he's got to make up another 130 or so. The Labour Party has 247 uh, MPs. So if half of them even decided to oppose uh, this vote, then uh, he wouldn't get it because the other opposition parties are not going along with it. Labour's position, as expressed this morning, is they will not vote for this tonight uh, and they won't vote for a general election until such time as the bill that uh, is going through today actually becomes law. That could be Friday, it could be Monday. And then Parliament is due to be prorogued uh, on, uh, on Monday. Uh, now, the, what Labour is saying is, uh, we don't trust you to uh, you know, to follow through with uh, with all of this. We don't trust you to actually have the election on the 14th or the 15th, as you say you will, of October. And we think you might change the date and move it to the end of the month. And so we want to just lock this thing down to make sure that uh, you know, the, the bill has passed. And so you are Oblige, you won't be able to do that under law because the law demands that you will have to seek an extension to Article 50 if you haven't got a deal by the October the 19th. So, uh, so first of all, he has to go through that hurdle. Now, if he is defeated, as I expect he will be tonight, so he doesn't get uh, the uh, the vote on the two-thirds majority, he can try again on Monday, and maybe after the bill has gone through, that will happen. But even if Labour, if Jeremy Corbyn whips his MPs in favour 
of voting with the government uh, on on Monday. It's not clear that uh, that half of them will actually follow the whip because an awful lot of Labour backbenchers, uh, benchers, a think that uh, you know they've got a very good chance of losing their seats if they have an election right now, and uh, and secondly, once again, they don't trust uh, Johnson. There's another political calculation, which is that uh, it's quite clearly in Boris Johnson's uh, interest to have this vote on according to his timetable. If Labour were somehow to contrive to trap him in Downing Street, prolong the agony, leave him there, as some Labour MPs have been talking about privately yesterday, just just you know, leave him hanging and stewing in his own juices in Downing Street, unable to do anything much, and you actually let him get to that point of October the thirty-four, the nineteenth, where he actually has to request an extension from the European Union. That destroys his entire electoral strategy because his electoral strategy is based on destroying the Brexit party, reuniting the Leave coalition from 2016. And uh, and if he has delayed Brexit, just like Theresa May did, the Brexit party certainly is not going to die. And so what's already a, a, a narrow path to victory for him becomes much more difficult, I think. Uh, now, I'm not sure if Labour can keep that going for quite so long, but they can certainly prolong the agony a little bit longer. And the thing is that if it does go beyond the point of prorogation, uh, the Parliament is prorogued until the uh, the 14th of October. And after that, under the uh, the act, you've got to uh, give have 25 working days between the time that you call the election and the time it happens. So that means that you uh, can't have it um, before the uh, you know, he can't avoid it. Could, in some couldn't way. couldn't uh, he just uh, resign though in in those circumstances? Well, again, uh, not according to the act. I mean, I suppose what he, what he can do is, I mean, he can resign. But I mean, according to you, know, he can resign, and then then what happens? Do you have no government? I mean, according to the the Queen, the Queen would have to ask somebody else to form a government. Yes, yeah, so the Queen. So then, yes, yeah, so that is the. Uh, you know, that's one of the options. So then, the Queen asks somebody else to form the government, and uh, you know, and maybe nobody can form a government, but maybe as you know, uh, the days go by, somebody says they will, and also it's it's not really the best look. I think for him to uh, you know to resign, leave the country in chaos, essentially abdicate his responsibility for governing the country. It follows a pattern that he's carried out through his whole life. Uh, it's, it, it seems to me, it seems to me though that his calculation must uh, must be, uh, you know, um, for all the drama of last night, at least some of it, I suppose, was uh, was foreseeable. Um, so it seems to me that his calculation is either that this legislation goes through, then he gets an election. And then he can, if he wishes, and has if he wins the election as a majority, he could repeal the legislation. So just to, be, just to be clear on that, the legislation has gone through by Monday and the Commons meets on Monday. And because the legislation has gone through, Jeremy Corbyn is able to carry enough of his party uh, to to basically to, to, to agree yeah, to an election. There may be point. two ways of doing that. I'll come back to that uh, in a second. But he may also be judging, and I wonder what Dennis thinks of this, that it has become simply politically unsustainable for Jeremy Corbyn, who has been demanding an election for two years, to now suddenly say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to. But Dennis is saying, sorry, I'll come back to you in a second, Dennis. Dennis is saying, no matter what Jeremy Corbyn says, it is possible that Jeremy Corbyn won't be able to bring enough Labour MPs into the... To get the two-thirds majority. But I wonder, Dennis, couldn't uh, couldn't he table a one-line bill setting aside the... Uh, fixed term Parliament yeah. Act, setting an election date in law 
for yeah. say the 14th of October yeah, and, and he, and needs, he only uh, needs he a needs bare a majority, majority for that. He yes. simple, but he doesn't have a simple majority. He has no majority. He has uh, considerably less than a majority. Do you think that those, uh, you know, I mean, after Philip Lee crossed the floor to join the Liberal Democrats, he lost his majority. Mm -hmm. And uh, so do you think any of those 21 Tory rebels who uh, rebelled last night are going to vote for uh, an early election for his convenience? It's not going to happen. So, uh, you know, he he won't be able to get the simple majority. And not only that, but actually the, uh, you know, uh, that bill could be subject to amendment. You could put all kinds of things into that. But anyway, the fact is, I think it's, you know, that's not a route that he's going to be able to take. Uh, You know, I suppose, you know, as you say, he could resign. That then really does create, you know, an unprecedented uh, constitutional crisis. The other method is the, uh, the, you know, that you have a vote of no confidence. So I suppose he could, uh, you know, ask his MPs to vote no confidence in his own government. And, we really are uh, through the looking glass on this stuff, aren't we? Yeah, and then you know, but and then you get into this whole business of you know, an alternative government has you know, you've got fourteen days to form an alternative government, and let's say Jeremy Corbyn tries, is unable to do so, then maybe they try with somebody else. You know, uh, the thing is that I think also you know what's important is that the mood on the opposition benches is changing. One of the reasons why. Um, Jeremy Corbyn got a good hearing yesterday was because he is now working with other opposition parties. So those opposition parties who uh, were constantly, you know, undermining him uh, and attacking him uh, in a competitive way, at this moment, in this particular constitutional moment and political moment, they're not doing that because they're on the same side and they're working together. And so, uh, so it, it could be that some kind of compromise can happen, whether it's with Corbyn as leader, probably unlikely, but as somebody else. Uh, that you know, I suppose what I'm saying is it's very unpredictable what would happen if there was a successful vote of no confidence in the government. And it's certainly uh, the case that Boris Johnson is would, would no longer be in control of events. In fact, he is not in control of events as of now. Does this all make Boris Johnson look terrible, Pat? Does it look? Does that kind of sense of vim and vigor and energy and you know, um, damn the Ramoners? Does that start ebbing away because it, the reality of what is actually a very weak position is being exposed? The same position as Theresa May is yes. in, if not worse. Yes, but but his position was always weak in a way, and that was disguised by the vim and vigor of the early uh, of the early weeks and the way that he did seize the political momentum. But he runs up against the problem that Theresa May has and we're back to the fact that he is no parliamentary uh, he is no parliament, parliamentary majority he's no parliamentary at all now not to, not to mind just not having one for either a deal or a no deal and until that fact is resolved and it can only be resolved by a general election then we're probably sort of stuck in this sort of unpredictable uh, stalemate really Um we would turn to another point that arose yesterday, Dennis. Uh, Lady Sylvia Herman asked uh, Boris Johnson a question in relation to Northern Ireland and his answer seemed to open the possibility that he was looking at, you know, at, at, at introducing measures for um, keeping alignment on agri-foods and various subjects like that across the entire Ireland of Ireland, which kind of at least maybe seemed to just signal... Um, a move away, a move towards some kind of version of a new backstop, which was Northern Ireland only? 
Yeah, they, uh, this is, is certainly uh, something they're looking at. They discussed it at Cabinet earlier this week. And uh, and the idea is that it would be limited to just agri-food, so animals and food products. And the DUP are relatively relaxed about it. And uh, essentially what they're saying is, well, you know, this is the system we have now, that the island of Ireland is a single uh, unit for this stuff, and that uh, you have already got some checks going across the Irish Sea on animals for animal health. Uh, but they want some kind of mechanism for consent. So in other words, they want to have some kind of mechanism where they would have a say over new regulations that would be uh, introduced by the European Union after the backstop is in operation or this regime is in operation. Now, they and indeed the government would say, well, that's this is not we're not talking about a Northern Ireland only backstop. But politically, if you actually do concede the principle of a regulatory barrier in the Irish Sea of any kind, then Politically, in England at least, it's not that much of a step to say, well, let's take a look at, you know, Michel Barnier's proposals for a de-dramatized Northern Ireland-only backstop. And if you remember, this was a year ago that uh, he came up with these. And basically what he was saying was, okay, you've got to have the animal checks, uh, you know, live animal checks. Uh, They would be at the ports. And then uh, you've got to check for customs and VAT. And you could do that in a sort of a barcode scanning, you know, on the ferries, you know, on the, the, the ship or the boats going over. And then with you know, checking goods for compliance with EU regulations, you would do that in the market. And so that what that means is what they call market surveillance in the European Union, which is basically that if you go into uh, Arnott's and you see a toaster that's a bit dodgy and you buy it, then you basically go to whatever the toaster regulator is locally and you then – uh, complain. Obviously, nobody has ever bought a toaster that's not perfect in Ireland, but just uh, you know. <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you, thank you for adding that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, but where that uh, that happened, and so so it's you know what I'm saying is that this stuff is pretty unintrusive. So uh, so I think what it does do is that you know as, as of now the proposal is not in any sense interesting to Dublin or to Brussels because it's actually a sectoral piecemeal proposal. But if it were to kind of illuminate the path towards uh, Britain moving towards uh, a Northern Ireland-only backstop. That would make sense also in the sense that what Boris Johnson believes about Brexit is that the point of it is regulatory divergence, that the only way Brexit can succeed uh, is actually if Britain is free to have a totally different regulatory uh, regime to the European Union. And that's quite clearly just not going to be acceptable for the island of Ireland. And so the only way that you can square that circle is that you allow most of the UK economy, nearly all of it, to go off its own way. And then you have this Northern Ireland only backstop. So I think if you were able to get them on that path and perhaps beef up some kind of consultative process uh, about the regulations that come in after the backstop, and particularly, obviously, if the DUP were surplus to requirements in the next parliament, then I think you might just have you know, some kind of chink of light in, towards the deal. Indeed, and Cliff Taylor has a piece in today's Irish Times which goes through in more detail why this particular proposal is not going to fly with Dublin or or, or indeed with Brussels. But do you agree that it's possibly a sort of a, a flag of what might happen with the Boris Johnson majority government, Pat? I think if there is a landing zone uh, for a, a, an agreement, it's somewhere uh, in, in, in that direction, all right. And interestingly... While the Irish government has been consistent saying that the withdrawal agreement can't be, uh, you know, can't be reopened, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they've held that line, if you ask people in government, you know, what about 
you know, imagine for a second that uh, Boris Johnson didn't need the DUP and offered a Northern Ireland only backstop. Could you reopen the withdrawal agreement to change it in that respect? And it's at that point that they say, uh, they tend to say, well, you know, that was the original EU proposal anyway. Mm -hmm. So that wouldn't really be changing the withdrawal agreement, even though, of course, it would. But uh, it, it would be a change that they could live with. Well, now, it, there's it, a long it, distance between It would actually that. be removing a conce- something that was given as a concession to the UK government, which, That's which, right. was, which yes. was the expansion to the entire UK. That's right, yeah. So, so I, I, I think, you know, as Dennis says, it's not there yet, but it is something that could, as he says, illuminate the way towards a possible resolution or a possible landing zone for this, but we're at a lot of steps between uh, now and then. And it is contingent, of course, uh, upon... Boris Johnson, if, if, if he is still Prime Minister, having uh, a majority of his own and not being dependent on the DUP. It just all seems a bit abstract still at the moment, though, Dennis, in relation to what we're facing over the next week in Westminster. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and also, I mean, it's quite clear that those people around Boris Johnson don't believe that anything can be done really in terms of the EU negotiations until an election is out of the way and you get into those last couple of weeks. And they, you know, Johnson, who was in uh, Brussels in the early 90s, you know, when there were 12 member states and you had no single market, still thinks he understands the way Brussels works and he thinks they do everything at the last minute and this is the way you go in. And so they've always believed in a way that everything's going to be done at the last minute. So I don't, I don't think you know that you're going to certainly if there is an election you're not going to hear too much about this for the next few weeks but I do think that it's uh, it's something you know it's the logical way of dealing with the thing where you can actually uh, give Boris Johnson an awful lot of what he wants and uh, and if you find a way that this uh, backstop is more acceptable to unionists in Northern Ireland then I think it might work. Dennis thanks for joining us and we'll be following your dispatches with great interest over the next few days. Now, Pat is still with us, but we want to dig a little deeper into what the thinking is inside the Conservative Party itself about the way in which these events are now unfolding. To help us with that, we are joined by the Deputy Political Editor of The Spectator, Katie Bowles. Katie, is it fair to say that the Conservatives were a little bit blindsided in the last 36 hours or so by the approach of Jeremy Corbyn and Labour as to whether an election should be called? I do think there is some surprise amongst figures in Downing Street, figures in government, that Labour haven't jumped at the opportunity to go for a general election, um, partly because Labour for the past couple of years have just been saying that they want a general election. I think Corbyn's preferred Brexit policy has been going to a general election. So I think there is some surprise. I don't think there is panic. Um, I I think there is a sense in Downing Street that actually they don't think they will be able to keep up this line. They think it will make Labour look quite ridiculous if they keep saying they don't want a general election and they want to keep the Tories in power. But um, it definitely, I think, has meant that the perhaps the initial plan has had to be tweaked slightly. And what about, we've been hearing a bit over the last few hours since the, um, the removal of the whip from the, from the rebel Conservative MPs last night, that of, of, of some discontent or some discomfort with what was done there and with the, the strategy which has been adopted under, under Dominic Cummings over the last few days? Yeah, I, I think the mood in the Conservative Party this morning isn't uh, triumphant. We've got them out of sense at all, to be honest. I think if you look at the Tory rebels last night who have now had the whip withdrawn, these are, in a way, the most unlikely rebels 
themselves. Um, they're people who are usually very well behaved, people who are usually in, in government and also stick to the party line pretty religiously. I mean, David Gork, up until, I suppose, a couple of weeks ago, was seen as a safe pair of hands, the person you'll send onto the airwaves to like te- keep the government line or George Osborne used to talk about uncorking the gawk, um, you know, when there was trouble at the dispatch box. So I, I think that's what makes it a bit tricky because you can't dismiss this group as just the, you know, the hardliners who just couldn't get behind anything. And lots of the current Conservative MPs have worked with these figures. So I think there is some disquiet over it. Others think you did you did have to respect authority. But I do also, from speaking to a few rebels, sense that there is anger towards Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's most senior aide. And I had one uh, former now Tory MP say to me this morning that they trusted Boris Johnson in terms of Brexit and his promises. The problem was they didn't trust Dominic Cummings, and that meant they decided to rebel. Is there any sense at all, looking at uh, what happened there, that that might, uh, should we get to a general election in the next four or five weeks, that that might have a negative impact on the Conservative performance in the general election, that that very sensible, respectable strand of the Conservative Party has been, you know, humiliated, perhaps? I think there's potential for that. I, I, I mean, I think in an election, in a way, if these candidates want to stand again, and some, such as Justin Greening, have said they won't be seeking re-election, um, yet the impression someone like Rory Stewart will be, it could eat into the Tory vote. Uh, I think it'd be hard for these figures to keep their seats, but it could eat into the Tory vote and be another factor which makes it challenging for the Conservatives. I think the view in 10 Downing Street, however, is that there's not much point having a general election and perhaps getting a small majority if the bulk of your Conservative MPs, or not the bulk, but a portion of your Conservative MPs still won't get behind your Brexit plan. So therefore, although it's a difficult thing to do and for some of the parties to accept, it's it's necessary in order to make sure that when Parliament returns, and if there is a Tory government again, you do have a group that will actually get behind a decisive plan. Katie, do you you think it's sustainable for Corbyn to hold out against an election? I mean, clearly he can do it today, possibly tomorrow. But if the legislation is, is passed which seems more likely now, I suppose, than did a couple of couple of days ago. Do, do you think at that point, I mean, if you get into early next week, the legislation's on the statute books, do you think the case for an election within Labour becomes kind of irresistible at that stage? I think an election is inevitable and ultimately Labour can't hold up this line for too long because it is just strange that Her Majesty's opposition wouldn't want to have a general election when there is currently a Tory government. I think that in terms of the bill, in terms of its process, it could be after that that things start to happen. There's also some Labour figures who think that Boris Johnson could have a route to getting an early election of his own accord, which is first he's trying under the Fixed Term Parliament Act. After that, he could try this one-line bill, which would require only a majority of MPs in the House, so a smaller number. And there's a sense that the SNP might help him get to an election um, because they would want an election. They think they'd do very well there. So perhaps you'd get around it that way. But I think whatever happens um, in the next couple of weeks, it's very hard to see a situation where Jeremy Corbyn, I think, would keep Boris Johnson in place till the 1st of November. I, I do think that is quite untenable. It's a long, long time in uh, in politics, given the, the, the speed at which uh, events are moving in recent days. And there is this idea around that they could, you know, Labour could kind of trap 
Boris Johnson and keep him prisoner almost in number 10. But he could just resign, couldn't he? What, what, what would happen then? Well, he could resign. I think that number 10 do not want him to do that, however. Um, I think, I mean, we're in a, a point in terms of the Constitution where it's very hard to predict the various things that could happen. But I do think that if there's actually a plan to keep Boris Johnson in number 10 for several weeks to a few months um, while trying to make sure a no-deal Brexit is avoided and this extension is secured. Um, I, I think you're going to see some quite extraordinary things happening from the number 10 side. Um, I think, think that Boris Johnson has made very clear he will not request an extension. Um, now, it might be that he turns up in Brussels and says, oh, well, I have to request this extension, but just so you know, we are going to be the most difficult member you've ever seen. We are going to cause problems constantly. Or it might be that they try and get it vetoed. There's some talk of the UK trying to veto it. So I think if Labour were to try and pursue that route, you're going to have a situation where number 10 will go fire fire on that. Katie, can I ask you one more thing? It's Earlier on we were discussing with Dennis, you know, the goings-on at Westminster yesterday and there was a general perception, which you may or may not share, that it wasn't a good day for Boris Johnson in terms of his performance, the quality of his responses, the quality of his oratory. Is there any sense of that in the political establishment over there that he didn't have a good day and maybe, you know, maybe not, not, not so good as far as buyer's remorse, but a sense of concern about his ability to, to get this thing done? So, I mean, he didn't look comfortable in the chamber. I think he had a difficult time on the dispatch box. Um, in a way, it just that specific performance it just isn't the biggest story of the day. Overall, it's the fact that the government lost its majority almost willfully. Sure. Philip Lee crossed the floor, but then they decided to deselect <laughs> over 20 Conservative MPs or withdraw the whip. So I think there is a sense that it wasn't in some ways a good day for the government. But <laughs> what complicates it slightly is people are trying to work out what number 10 strategy is. Now, there's a saying in politics, you know, it's usually not conspiracy, it's actually usually cock up. But I think on, in this occasion, if you look at the vote leave figures in number 10, um, there, there is still a sense that perhaps they know what they're doing, just know everyone else is none the wiser. Because even though things haven't gone quite to plan, you do feel like number 10 has been driving things the whole time. Whereas I think under Theresa May, uh, disasters would happen government losses would follow and there'd be this long pause while number 10 would try and work out what to do or they'd reach out to people. Boris Johnson did very little to avoid yesterday's defeat. He met with a handful of would-be rebels at 10 Downing Street. Um, but ultimately, it wasn't the kind of last-minute efforts of the whips calling these people in, saying, this is what you're doing if you don't go for it. It didn't feel that much, uh, I suppose, of a strong effort. So I just think there is a sense that the Conservative Party is undergoing a transformation. And actually, perhaps what Number 10 wanted to do was to have these people rebel so they can put in candidates in these seats in the election who will back their Brexit plans, whether that is a deal agreed at the last minute or a no-deal Brexit. I suppose, um, to quote one of my favourite films, This is Spinal Tap, there's a very thin line between clever and stupid and we'll find out whether whether, whether there is a genius at work um, in, in the very near future, really, won't we? I, I think that's correct. I think that, yeah, we should perhaps know in a couple of weeks or months. But yeah, I think ultimately we are heading to a general election at some point um, this year and the result of that I think will tell which is whether we just didn't understand the strategy while we were sat here or some of us had gauged it but we weren't quite sure the, the bigger picture. All things actually did start going wrong yesterday 
and it was the start of a, a negative turn of events to the party. Speaking to Conservative MPs today, last night, I don't think there is a sense for sure that of either of those options. I think people are trying to stay cautiously optimistic, but it is hard to do in the, in the current situation. Katie, thanks very much for joining us today. And that is it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always extremely welcome. You can get me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com, or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. 